got statesmen stating statements and statuses like radishes, pull request, can't half of this. Full of state, half empty, skull, grub plate. Pack that gam up on my cam, I'm so modern you can call me Tate. Four minds, four countries in the heavy 2020. We won't be rate the state of state when we share our good and plenty. We got Rosemary, Lily, Thomas, and Jackie rolling steady. Alpha, beta, keep that data always flowing on Kubernetes. Ah. Welcome everybody to the Data on Kubernetes um, meetup. Super, super excited to be here today in the middle. Well, we're getting started with KubeCon, so there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of cool ideas that are going around. Um, my name is Bart. I'm taking over for Demetrius. Demetrius um, wasn't feeling so hot today, so I have a chance to run the show my, on my own. And um, anyway, got a bunch of different things we want to talk about. But before we get started, just to let everyone know, we always want everyone to know all the folks out there that have interests or ideas, concepts that they want to share, anything related to data on Kubernetes. We have our Slack. We've got um, uh, around 250 people in there now. We've grown a lot since July. We also are on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. We're, um, we're really excited to get all the different ideas from all the folks out there. Just in this group, we have a really, really cool mix of different people from different countries. We have the United States. We have Canada. We have... Slovenia by way of Berlin, we have Poland, and we have Northern California by way of Bilbao in, in the Basque country, all right? So this is pretty cool, this is exciting. I don't know if a meeting with this exact mixing and matching has happened before, but like I said, we definitely wanna invite everyone to get it on our Slack. We also have podcasts, we're starting to make animated videos with metaphors, different people's ideas. Another thing that I wanna to announce today that we're super excited about is that we are starting to collaborate um, with uh, an NGO that's also in KuCon, which is Code2040 which is helping uh, Black and Latinx folks uh, get better access to code training um, in the United States. They have a really, really good plan for the next, uh, for the next few years to get a lot more folks from, from diverse backgrounds in, into programming. So uh, there will be a $100 donation being made in the dedicated to our wonderful panelists. Um, so that will be on Twitter, so look out for that soon. We also have t-shirts, if anybody wants a t-shirt, although logistics are kind of interesting right now with 2020 and the COVID situation, we can get a t-shirt anywhere in the world. So just feel free to reach out and message me on Slack. That being said, I'm gonna introduce our panelists. We have a rock star lineup. I haven't been able to interview such an awesome panel yet since I've been involved in the data on Kubernetes community. But um, we have uh, Tomas from, from Poland. Tomas, could you just introduce yourself and explain how you got into this whole world of, of Kubernetes, particularly the issue of data on Kubernetes. And, and you recently wrote an article as well on uh, the challenges of stateful versus running stateless applications. So can you just introduce yourselves to everyone and, and let them know who you are? Okay. Hi, hi, I'm, I'm Thomas or, or Thomas if you prefer. So uh, yeah, so I, I'm a co-founder of uh, CloudCode Labs, uh, but I'm also a um, cloud native enthusiast. And um, yeah, I, I write sometimes occasionally some articles uh, that you can find on our page or on my own uh, blog. And uh, basically I, I've been working with uh, Kubernetes for over five years now. So, so almost from the beginning and uh, uh, I'm helping companies to, to, you know, to implement uh, this cloud native approach uh, basically. Thanks. Very good. Thank you. It's always interesting when we get the difference, uh, you know, different amount of years that people have been spending. It's always a little bit wishy-washy if someone says, and I've been working on Kubernetes for 12 years, but obviously it's not your case. Anyway, thank you very much for being here. Lily, how about you? 
Sure. Um, hi, I'm Lily. I work at Red Hat currently, um, and I work. Uh, I'm just a software engineer, and I've been working with Kubernetes. I actually think about it for like four years or so. Um, so currently, my position is around monitoring and observability, uh, and I'm the maintainer of Prometheus operator, um, which is why I was invited mainly to uh, discuss the Prometheus statefulness. Very, very good. We will definitely be looking at Prometheus. Cool. Next, Jackie, how about you? So I'm not going to lie. I had to like look at my LinkedIn to see which job it was I started doing Kubernetes in because what is time? But um, I started doing it three years ago. I currently work as a developer advocate at HashiCorp and I work with Nomad, which is the orchestration tool we have. And prior to this, I got into Kubernetes actually at a digital healthcare company. So it's fun stories there, but we can get into those after. Very, very good. Like you said, very diverse LinkedIn. Sometimes you have to know which hat am I going to wear today? Which story, which angle am I going to take? Good stuff. And Rosemary, what about yourself? Uh, I'm Rosemary Wong. I'm a developer advocate at HashiCorp as well. I have been working with Kubernetes for about four years. I fell into it because I was a consultant and a client really wanted to use it. So I had to learn it in probably two or three weeks. Uh, and the, the difficult part was that I actually had to deploy console and vault on Kubernetes before there was any support for it. Uh, and so I went down this really big rabbit hole of stateful sets, operators and PVCs. Uh, and it was, you know, it was just this really amazing thing to me. So I fell into it because of a very practical purpose. Very, very good. Rosemary, well, can we stick with you for one second? I was listening, uh, every time we do these, I always try to do my homework and watch videos or listen to podcasts of the folks that are gonna be on, uh, on the program with us. And in your case, listening to a couple of interviews, you talked about your background as a DevOps um, and saying that that term is, you know, relatively slippery sometimes. What is a DevOps? What is not a DevOps? We've got DevSecOps, we've got AIOps, we've got all these different kinds that you added ops onto anything, you know, and it makes it, gives it a little bit of an extra edge. With the same thing, I often find a slippery sort of sensation with when talking about cloud native. Um, and also I was talking to, to Thomas's uh, colleague, Yakub, about this, is that when people say cloud native, what is it that we're really trying to say, particularly within this context of KubeCon? Could you, you know, give us a two or three sentence or a, a short summary about for you, what it means for something to be cloud native, what it means to be cloud native. So imagining that, you know, when we have to talk to people that are outside the community and you say, well, there's this thing called the cloud native computing foundation. And they'll give you like, yeah. uh, um, so how do you, how do you approach that? How do you frame it? So my definition of cloud native or my thoughts about cloud native came pre pre Kubernetes because uh, I did a lot of other container orchestrator stuff. And um, I also had to manage a private cloud. So what it effectively meant to me when I was teaching people the term cloud native meant that you could self-service, you were empowered to do things for any kind of resource you wanted to. Infrastructure is this basically this definition of whatever your application needs to be supported. It could be metrics, it could be uh, queues, it could be servers. So any of those things that you could self-service effectively became cloud. And to do it, to be able to use it within your applications, to use it within even data processing meant that you had to change your, the way that things were written, the way that things were structured. So that inherently meant being cloud native. Can you run in this ecosystem of self-service resources? That's great. And I think a lot of times as well too, something that I like to touch on a lot in our community is that as much as we have obviously very strong technical profiles and this panel is no exception. Sometimes, or I always think there's always a cultural element that goes along in this. And that, that as you said, is that 
yes, we can talk about technical things, but we're really talking about a mindset and approach. Lily, since you've been working with Kubernetes for a while, and, and do you share the same uh, uh, thoughts as, as Rosemary regarding um, cloud native or anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, definitely. Like, like you said, the cultural aspect is so important. Like convincing people or getting them to be in that right mindset um, makes it so much easier to explain the concepts and the terms and the technologies we use and why it's so important. So I definitely agree with Rosemary. Yeah. Very, very good. Um, now, Jackie, thinking about KubeCon right now, we've got an interesting situation in the world. We're doing everything virtually. We're doing everything digitally. For someone in your role with, uh, you know, working as a, as a developer advocate, working directly with all different kinds of folks from all different kinds of countries. How do you see the importance of KubeCon um, going on right now and what it's delivering to the world in the, in the community sense? Ooh, that's specific. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna start with my first KubeCon was last year and I went as a DevOps engineer. So kind of going to that and seeing this like 12,000 12, person keynote is completely crazy. And then coming to this side of it where I'm not a DevOps engineer going, I was actually going to learn about state specifically last year. Um, there was some problems we were running into that I want to figure out. Seeing everything continuing on one hand, I think brings like a sense of consistency and stability. And like, it's easy to kind of feel really isolated with everything going on right now. And previously I felt pretty isolated trying to learn these things on my own anyway. So I think having the conference still go on at least continues to provide a place for people to learn and network, even if we're adapting to figure out what that is like. Um, I forget if there's a second half to that question. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I think that's a really, okay. really good point. No, I think it's a great point though, too, is that a, is that for a lot of folks out there that you know have a, maybe a difficult entry point and obviously a physical event where you can go around and meet lots of people and, and visit stands and booths, et cetera, is really, really good. I think at the same time, I think all the organizers have done a, a really, really good job of of we have there's tons of conversations going on right now in Slack. I don't I don't know how many Slacks you've written today, but I've definitely written more than more more than a couple. Um, and, and like you said, a lot of, I think what this is about is, is, um, people trying to solve problems in a common way, sharing ideas, being open, being willing to, uh, to give a hand. And Thomas, maybe you can comment a little bit about that in your experience on a, on a local level in, in Poland, um, from a community perspective, what are the things that you're working on in your community? Well, basically we are trying to convince people that, um, the way that they work previously, uh, like with virtual machines. Uh, it's it's no longer it's no longer viable. You know, it's it's no longer valid for 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 requirements uh, of, of modern workloads of modern uh, software. So basically, we are trying to convince them, convince them that uh, you know it's time to move on. It's time to start using containers even for stateful applications. Uh, so. Even and what is really important, even if you can't use cloud, if you for some reason you are forbidden to to use cloud, for example, one of the most um, prominent examples is, uh, for example, financial services. So even if you can't use uh, public cloud, you can always use modern approach, modern cloud native approach with Kubernetes and containers. Very very good, Lily. What would you like to add to that? You know, the, just from the, the, the basic, you know, thing that we encounter a lot is that people say, just go stateless. Don't get involved in the data, keep the data out of it. If you bring the data in there, we're gonna have problems. How do you approach that? A lot of times when we talk to people, we'll say there's a trade-off, could be a performance trade-off, a cost trade-off. How do you see that? I think I see it from more of a learning thing. Like, I, I feel like people need to learn a new approach rather 
um, as if it's with any other technology, right? Kubernetes doesn't make it any special or magical, um, but what it does is it does provide ways and tooling around it that do um, give you an abstraction layer. Um, you still need the experience in running a database, right? Um, like you would in any other system, there is nothing magical Kubernetes does there, but there's also nothing to be afraid of, I think. Um, I think that's the misconception I feel. The only thing is just make sure that you have the administrators that can run stateful sets, rather, uh, stateful services, whether they're on Kubernetes or anywhere else, really. So we can say the only fear we have uh, that we should have is uh, is a fear itself. You know that there, yes, exactly. Yeah, that don't yeah. don't don't worry about it because I think a lot of times it gets so overwhelming for yes, people. Yes, definitely. Like, I don't want to get involved in this. Now, good. Let, can we turn it over to um, to you, um, Rosemary? Can you can you fill us a little bit in about Vault? Yeah. So Vault's interesting because you're storing sensitive information in an entity that is now hosted on Kubernetes that, uh, you know, is made to be multi-tenant, right? So it was really funny for a long time, everybody was asking me, should I do it? Should I put Vault on Kubernetes because it's multi-tenant? Because can I secure it? My secrets are encrypted. Are they encrypted? Are they not encrypted? Is there a management overhead to putting such a complex system like Vault uh, that is very, very, very uh, sensitive on Kubernetes. And the answer is yes, but with caveats, right? Um, there's a whole list of recommendations, but Vault on Kubernetes is a really interesting case because, you know, Vault itself was built to be on a distributed system. The way that it was architected was actually very much meant to kind of divide the, the content of the data uh, from the actual control of how it's moving, of its transmission. Um, it had to be built that way. It's moving secrets around. So the way that Vault works in Kubernetes is you can choose your storage option. Um, previously, in the past, you had to do it separately. So you would put it in console somewhere. You would put it maybe in a bucket somewhere. Um, now there's an integrated storage capability, which means you store that information in memory. And that provided, I mean, it was a whole host of questions, availability, right? Uh, can you gain consensus? Is there consistency? Because it's not going to be great if you have a secret that doesn't work. So many questions there, many questions about state. Um, and it wasn't until recently that Vault itself was architected to be able to do that, right? So for the long time, it was meant to be stateless in that it was deferring all the storage somewhere else. Um, now it's becoming, after Vault 1.4, now it's becoming more integrated in there. Um, and that information is encrypted by Vault itself. So it's a it's it's gotten better. I think it's also gotten easier to run it on Kubernetes as well. Very, very good. Now switching over to Jackie, because obviously working in uh, you know developer advocacy as well. I, from listening to an interview of yours uh, a couple of days ago, you know, you were talking about how while you are in the, you know, in the dev advocacy teams that you're then also rotating around to, to other teams to see how things are going on inside there, whether it's Vault or other things that are going on in HashiCorp, how do you, you know, do you, uh, I'm, I'm just curious about the way in which you get feedback from people that are working with these things, so then, you know, okay. Where, where Vault is working, but maybe uh, from a user experience perspective or from a developer experience perspective, what are the things that maybe need to be tweaked or fine-tuned? How does that process work in HashiCorp? 
I think there's a bit of flexibility on how we do it, depending on which product team you're working on. So um, as developer advocates, we tend to focus on one or two products that we work most closely with. Um, in my case, that feedback comes from sometimes it's talks and having like questions and answers. Um, I tend to look a lot in the Hangout Slack and my local DevOps Toronto Slack. Uh, there's usually lots of discussion going on there. And I try and bring that feedback as well. And then I also sometimes will do like um, kind of meetings with different people using our products, whether they're practitioners or they're companies that are stuck on problems, or maybe they want to share something really cool they've done. I found those have been like the coolest because they take time to like walk through their tech stack and show us how it's working and everything. And then the final one is we also have like an internal team that's like our SRE team and our cloud infrastructure team, and they use all of our products as well. So kind of being able to get that feedback, but then also kind of poke in somebody's repository and see like, what are you actually doing with it? Um, which I can't do as much as a developer advocate. That's been really nice. And we're still ironing out on like my teams, at least how we bring that feedback back and then use it. But we have the channels through community as well as like our, um, our clients and customers and just different areas. And there's a, there's a lot of answers to this. We also have like a discuss forum where we have posts that we inter interact with and GitHub issues, all these kind of contribute into that. Yeah. No, it's great because once again, going back to this common theme of we have the technical side, but then there's got to be a human side. We've got to be seeing how are folks reacting to this? What are the things they're going to say about it? You know, are we using our social listening to, to map out what are the, the reactions that people have in order to make improvements? Now, on more as, from a, an outsider's perspective, we could say, uh, from talking to Thomas, he is a fan of HashiCorp and has quite a bit of experience. From your experience, uh, Thomas, whether it's whether it's with Nomad, whether it's with Vault, whether it's with Console, um, what has your experience been, particularly when we're talking about this issue of running uh, stateful applications? Uh, by you, well, using uh, HashiCorp products, or well, I'm mostly fan of uh, two of your solutions, uh, like you HashiCorp. Uh, first of all, Terraform, which is basically doesn't involve any states. Uh, well, actually, it does. But, you know, with some uh, recent features, it can store states inside uh, Kubernetes. Uh, but Vault is, for me, it's kind of, you know, game changer when it comes to security. And this is one of my favorite uh, projects, favorite tools that I recommend to everyone uh, who, uh, who who is who wants to you know do it more in a more secure way so um, basically uh, yeah this is this is something that i really really uh, enjoy uh, working with and uh, and of course many people uh, use uh, many people uh, also uh, use uh, console for example uh, which is also a very fancy uh, tool especially uh, especially with console connect features so I really enjoy, you know, having a, a different approach to service mesh. So like service mesh uh, with with console connect, it, it is for, for me, it's much easier to, to achieve than with uh, Istio. And uh, yeah, I, obviously I am a fanboy. So let just, let, let, I won't pretend that I'm not so. <laughs> easy audience, easy audience. That's yeah. Good. All right. Yeah. Lily, now to move it over towards you, can we talk a little bit about the differences between Prometheus and Vault? Some of the people in the community were telling me, hey, since Lily's got a lot of experience with, with Prometheus, maybe we can see a little bit comparing and contrasting side by side. Sure. I mean, Prometheus is a monitoring tool. So um, in that regard, it, it can be compared one to one, I guess, to, uh, to Vault. Um, but I guess from a storing perspective, maybe, um, like Prometheus doesn't do data replication. 
um, because it's it's your monitoring system shouldn't be a distributed system, so it doesn't do data replication. Um, but if you want things like long-term storage, you can either have it on your cluster with a persistent volume claim, or you can send it to um, via remote write to like a Thanos receive or something like that. So in, in that regard, that's how you could sort of have like a vault uh, like thing, but yeah, it's hard to compare the two actually. When you said about data replication, that's actually something that's come up a lot and actually came mm -hmm. up last week as well. Um, and talking about uh, that and, and also issues of portability, um, mm -hmm. and is there is there anything that you've noticed recently regarding those issues or things, problems that you may have encountered? Um, so in terms of data replication, we haven't had any specific problems regards to that. I think since like the, the Prometheus operator, which is what we use to run Prometheus on Kubernetes, it's been it's quite resilient. It's one of the first operators that was created um, back in the day of Chorus, and it has a lot of um, battle testing. And we have quite a lot of like we mainly had some problems around persistent volume claims um, in Kubernetes, as there were some breaking changes. But in regards to that, it's just like any other um, stateful application on Kubernetes, essentially. Right. Sorry. Very, very good. Um, also with that in mind, um, something that, that came up last week, all right, we would obviously probably have to show everyone the video because also what Thomas was mentioning is that Jeffrey, the CTO of, um, of Maya Data was mentioning how there is no such thing as stateless, right? Obviously putting things in a certain, in a certain context. I wanna know, Lily, is there anything that, you, just based on that reflection, what would you say to that? That there's nothing stateless. There yeah, is no I, such thing as stateless. Yeah, I mean, everything needs to keep some sort of a state, right? Otherwise, what are, like, maybe a cron job can be stateless, right? Um, if you have it for a second, but, like, the, there's definitely, in, in terms of, like, if you use GitOps or something like that, you might have to keep your state in GitHub or and not in Kubernetes, but in, in reality, yeah, um, definitely, I agree. Okay. Good. All right. So we have we uh, we have someone in agreement with with Jeffrey's very controversial statement last week. Um, another thing that that came up in that conversation too, as well, was the the issue of resilience. All right, the issue of resilience. We've we talked about this about you know in in testing things because as in an interview with uh, Gary from Cloudian said in general, you know, data should not be moved. If it starts to be moved, there's risk of things getting broken. We have risk of having problems. How do you approach that, Lily? Yeah, so I think for for specifically if we look at Prometheus, like we if you have I don't know a faulty um, file system or there's something goes wrong with the vol replay, um, those kind of things that we encountered, usually you get the snapshot um, and you try to um, spin up a new Prometheus and essentially go from that data. But yeah, I think having remote write um, in terms of Prometheus to send to a um, Thanos receive, for example, or Cortex or whatever you choose, I think is the best way of ensuring that you have long-term storage. Um, but yeah, making the, making um, replications and those kind of things make total sense, I think. Very good. Now, for either one of uh, the folks from HashiCorp, regarding, um, regarding running Stateful on Nomad, either Rosemary or Jackie, could you take that question? Um, sure. Challenges, advantages, things that you've noticed, things that folks are mentioning. Oh, that's a, that's a very big scope. Um, I mean, so we have a couple different ways of running stateful workloads. There's 
like Kubernetes has like PVCs and stateful sets and I haven't worked with Kubernetes as much recently. So we're hoping it all stays together. But um, with Nomad, you have different types. We have like the host volumes. And then more recently, we've also implemented features for CSI, support for CSI. Um, I think around some of the challenges we've ran into with that would be we do have CSI available, but sometimes the actual drivers themselves are written in a very Kubernetes specific manner. So not all CSI works yet. And that's something we've been working on trying to figure out. Um, I haven't really been able to do like larger scale state to give a more in-depth answer in terms of what I've found for challenges in the two of them versus each other yet. But yeah, it's like, it's, it's been interesting. <laughs> Good. Rosemary, anything you'd like to add? So there, so there was, um, I was a Nomad engineer, Danny Lancashire, who explained a little bit of the nuances and the difficulties in running, just generally, in running stateful workloads on container orchestrators. It doesn't matter which one you're doing, um, but they all have a, 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 an interesting general set of patterns. I highly recommend it. I think it's, it was at O'Reilly Velocity last year. Um, but what's been really fascinating is how many of the patterns in, across many of these orchestrators you, you start to borrow, you start to understand the, even the ways that you handle it, right? Um, because they're all open source, you start to develop very similar patterns for how you handle state because they're all borrowing from each other. Um, and it's all for, for the better good, right? We don't, we don't wanna have a problem where we lose all our data. Uh, and so we all have this really interesting exchange of uh, patterns and approaches and challenges that we're all commonly working toward. Very good. And since you sourced somebody from HashiCorp as well, I would like to source a friend of mine, Tom Harvey, who uh, I had the pleasure of working with in the same company about three years ago, who's now an engineer at HashiCorp. And he told me to ask, um, to, or just to throw this out there, right, the issue of handling data across availability zones. Any, anybody, anybody. We can, Rosemary, we can start with you or we can easily pass this on to, to anybody else. Uh, I mean, I could start with that. I think it will heavily depend on the system um, and how it's built, right? So, um, sorry, there's like an awkward sun coming here. I should have turned the blinds. <laughs> well, um, it's a but, nice dramatic effect, don't worry, it's good. Thank yeah. you, thank you for, for a very difficult discussion. But uh, I think what's interesting is it will depend on the tool. So, the and not to say that anything is bad or worse, but just some of the ways that tools are uh, created often inform how they are handled across availability zones. So if you've got something, and I, this is very specific, but if you've got something like Apache Solar that is being backed by etcd, for example, and you're not using the etcd operator, you have to make decisions about how these things are deployed. If you've got nodes across multiple availability zones, um, you have to ask the question whether or not etcd or put in the blank here, uh, something that holds that state will actually work across multiple availability zones. Um, and the answer is, some tools will, some tools won't. Console, Vault, for example, don't really care about the availability zone much. Um, they're all uh, clients that communicate to the server. So, as you know, and even the servers themselves are also not terribly aware of what availability zones they're in. And um, yes, there are latency concerns, uh, but the tools themselves are built in a way to be able to achieve consensus based on that information. Um, so sadly, it will depend on the tool, uh, but most of them now are fairly agnostic to availability zone uh, with some exceptions. I think that's really good. And as you rightly mentioned, uh, sometimes the tool thing, I, I always give this example, but you know, tool battles can get really, really heated. 
Um, Tom can tell you about when we were working in the same company. I, I always mention this, but World War III almost started because of whether we were going to use Team City or Jenkins. It got really ugly. Some people threatened to leave the company. Um, but like you said, is it really a question of good or bad? It just they're just trade-offs. There are pros and cons. Every tool is going to have some strong points or weak points. It just kind of depends where you're at. Um, to take that further in talking about operators, all right? So something that came up um, in our discussion with uh, Patrick from Datastacks, this question is for you, uh, Lily, and then I also want to hear from Thomas, is um, how operators, historically speaking, we're not talking about very necessary decades of history, but are designed to resolve specific problems. But Patrick was suggesting that eventually there could either be one operator to rule them all, to paraphrase the Lord of the Rings, um, or that operators, you know, through self-learning and things like that, would sort of break away the need for having niche operators and rather just having, I guess we could say, a mothership. Lily, what do you think about that? I disagree to some point because I, I think that you need to, like operators to me, um, and I worked on many of them, have to be encompassing the knowledge of the person who is an expert in that technology, right? As well as an expert in Kubernetes. And I think those two people, like that one person or many people are actually the ones that can actually write the operators that um, are resilient, are battle-tested, as the case with like etcd operator, the Postgres operator from Zalando or the Prometheus operator. And I think that it makes more sense to have many of them it makes sense to maybe have one that manages them but um like in the case of olm or something like that but it makes sense to have many because there's no like there's no combination you will always have um in every company right not every company will go with prometheus or not every company will go with um having their own etcd for other specific cases like that you need to bring your own essentially um, but yeah, that's my opinion. At least. Yeah, great point. I think, and, and, and we saw that with a conversation we had with Alexander who works in uh, Zalando and is mm -hmm. with the Postgres operator. Yep. And so, and, and, and the thing is, is that the challenges that his company is facing are going to be different from other companies. Definitely. I think there is a lot to be said for, for, for tailoring operators to mm -hmm. solve certain problems. Um, I think that's a really, really good point. But often, like I said, whether it's questions like, is there no such thing as stateless or will there be one operator? We always want to get these futuristic yeah, yeah, questions yeah. and ideas in there too. Thomas, could you tell us about your experience working with operators? Well, to be honest, I think that operators are the future of Kubernetes because they are building blocks of something bigger than just Kubernetes being a container orchestrator engine. No, it's something more. Kubernetes is becoming a platform for building platforms. And when you want to build a platform, you're building a platform using operators. And of course, I wouldn't encourage anyone to, to create uh, their own operator for some application, but definitely for services such as databases or anything that is stateless, sorry, stateful. Uh, it is for me. It's mandatory to use operators because you know using Helm, for example, is just too simple. Operators, uh, as Lidl mentioned, uh, they give you something more because th they embed some complex logic behind. You know, not only you know making sure that you have a, a, a fixed number of replicas running, but also about upgrading about some disaster recovery that is ongoing in the background. So this is actually one of the most important part of Kubernetes as I see right now. 
That's good. And that actually ties very nicely into another question from my friend Tom who works at HashiCorp is about how to quickly handle backup or restoration for disaster recovery. Um, could Rosemary or, or Jackie, could either of you tackle that question? Jackie, you want me to? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I can touch on it quickly in terms of I don't know if there's an easy or quick way to handle backup and restoration um, for DR. I like the last time I worked with Kubernetes and I had a DR situation come up, we spent weeks planning it out. We were so, and we didn't have a lot of data. Like we had enough data and enough timeline that we could actually back it up and move it to another cluster and take that like short amount of downtime as long as we pre-planned everything else around it. And it went smoothly and we were so sure we did it right. And then it turns out that like one of our pods that was doing our, um, I think our event queuing, somehow got like dirtied with the one that was in a totally different region and we never figured out how so it's just i'm not really sure if there is an easy way but i'd love to hear rosemary's further thoughts on that let's do it oh gosh so i'm gonna borrow this so i borrowed this and i realized this weird thought and um, so i wrote uh, yet last end of last year there was an experiment to basically create an operator for terraform cloud uh, which is the SaaS offering for terraform the reason why is because it's well scoped behavior too many people use Terraform 200 different ways. It's really hard to write an operator for it. So we scoped it just to Terraform Cloud. And what was really interesting was that it was no, on Kubernetes, I don't really think of it as a backup and restore. Uh, it's sort of like a backup and put it in a new resource, right? And then it's this interesting kind of blue green approach that's not fully a backup and restore in the traditional sense. So if you're, you know, even if it's a console cluster, a vault cluster, if all else fails, you just create a new one and you snapshot the old one and you know, and basically flip it to the new instance. That's effectively how a number of the operator commands have started to be constructed, not just not the Kubernetes operators, but even operator workflows um, for applications or workflows running on container orchestrators in general have started to offer these snapshot capabilities where you take that snapshot and you layer it onto a completely new instance. So I don't know if, you know, I think the common pattern now is not a backup and restore, but backup and put to a new uh, resource of some kind. And, and that's a diff much different pattern than traditional DR, which is you have this passive resource available and then, you know, you keep it for all eternity, hope it is the same, roughly the same as what you have as your active resource uh, and you try to do it. So I think it's a little bit different now. Great. Lily, do you have any war stories, horror stories about disaster recovery that you'd like to share? No, I, I think I agree with what Rosemary said. I think that um, you just need to, it, it really depends on um, the component or service that you're actually uh, recovering from, right? Um, whether it's a database or Prometheus or anything like that. And I agree completely that it's just a, a bit different mindset, but everything else is more or less the same as in, across all uh, container orchestrators. Good. Thomas, anything to add before we move to the next question? Well, yeah, so I agree with Rosemary that uh, it's like similar to this uh, pets versus cattle, you know? So with Kubernetes, although we, we for, for stateful workloads, we do need storage, we kind of change our, we need to change our mindset when it comes to recovery. So, and always when I'm showing, you know, uh, some people or customers or, or, or some people that 
it's it's so easy you know to to destroy some some pod some some working container even with database and it can it can automatically you know it can be recovered automatically by kubernetes itself they are just amazed they, they just they don't they don't know that uh, it is possible and it's so very very easy very good thomas we're going to continue with you for the next question all right what are the advantages, and we can also say disadvantages, of deploying a stateful app versus a SaaS service on a cloud provider? Well, like I mentioned, if you can use cloud, then of course it is, you know, it is very easy to, to use a SaaS solution. And to be honest, uh, whenever someone asks me uh, whether whether uh, whether to put uh, whether to use database as a service. Uh, I always uh, reply that yeah, if you if you can, ju just use for example database as a service, and uh, but to be honest, many many organizations just can't go uh, with, with cloud services, and that's why you know you are you you probably you will end up with uh, some operator, or maybe you will just uh, start experimenting on your own. But I would definitely I uh, know recommend. Uh, launching uh, an operator for, for your database uh, cluster. So basically, if you can, of course, SaaS, uh, uh, SaaS services are quite cheap. Um, but for, in some cases, for example, if you have like a um, large cluster and you can spend some resources on experimenting, it is also very easy to, you know, to use uh, operators to spawn uh, multiple clusters, like for for some on-demand uh, test environment and so on, which which can be not only cheap but also very very fast. All right, Lily, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I completely agree. I think that it depends on your budget, your um, situation, and the amount of people you have. Right, um, whether you're running on Kubernetes or um, any other tool, like you need to know that there will need to be a dedicated team to be um, SREing this and that team needs to know and know that database or whatever state stateful application you're running. So I think it, it makes sense in the beginning when you're spinning up or even later, some companies choose to just focus their time on production um, and their applications, like their production applications versus running their database and give those to SaaS providers. And that's just perfectly fine. It really, whatever um, works for you essentially. Perfect. Now, switching over to Rosemary and Jackie, working with developers, working in developer advocacy, something that we ask a lot of times in our, in our, in our meetups is the issue of, you know, running data on Kubernetes for beginners, right? So if, you, if you're dealing with, a, with whether it's a developer or a database engineer or someone, someone DevOps, we can use all the different names we want to. Uh, if you're working with somebody in there uh, who's going to be starting out, we can talk about the technical side. And th I think those are important things. Before you start, make sure you've done X, Y, Z. It's probably good if you have experience with this. But also then there's the other side about mindset, about patience, about not getting too stressed out, about being kind to yourself, all this kind of stuff. From a podcast that we did a few weeks ago with somebody talking about the Strimzy operator, he said, be prepared for trial and error and don't be too hard on yourself when things don't work. Um, from your perspective, though, as, as dev advocates, uh, how do you see this? First of all, from, like I said, the technical side, or maybe we can even start with the mindset first and then how that can help with the technical side. Either one or both at the same time. I don't care. 
as we both yell our opinions. <clears throat> I mean, so from what you're saying from a mindset, um, something that I guess this is kind of in my hill to die on this year is documentation doesn't always cover like, oh, I'm getting a phone call. We're going to turn that off. <laughs> but documentation doesn't always cover like the proper beginner mindset. Like you, there's a lot of assumptions made and it can be really, really hard to kind of jump into something, especially stateful sets and Kubernetes as somebody that did that. Um, there's all these rabbit holes you go down when you're learning. It's really easy to get frustrated and kind of be like, I don't know what's going on and why don't I understand it? Um, and I think like, I think we could do a lot of work as a community around improving that experience. Um, from a technical standpoint, there's a lot of bells and whistles to learn going into it, especially if you're coming in, you're new and maybe you've just learned Docker and you're still like kind of getting familiar with the point of, oh, I run Docker and I changed something and then it's not there. Um, it's a pretty big jump from that level to Kubernetes itself and actually making sure the state stays there. Like, how are you managing your different volumes? Are they changing, et cetera? Um, yeah, I think. I could probably tangent more, but no, 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 we cannot say for sure that the backup of the backup of your object storage will not go to an American um, facility, which violates all kinds of HIPAA rules around data residency. Oh, this is good. It's so... data and politics. And particularly we're, we're Control of your data. data. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is really, really good. Um, so this is kind of where my tangent starts is, well, we had to, we're a three person team supporting like seven products. They all need healthcare compliance. And some of them are in Kubernetes and some of them are in colo like data centers and VMs of various levels of management. So that's kind of how my team actually got into using Helm and Kubernetes was, well, we need these environments that A, we can keep control of our data because we'd had a couple um, POC level, I think environments that we'd set up where we couldn't have that control or there was just other things with, um, this goes back a bit into your previous question about like running it versus doing like a pass or a SAS. Um, we had some issues where like parts of our I guess database as a service, we couldn't control it to the point that we needed to either to restrict it down or to open it to specific, um, like, like specific hospital ports that needed to be able to communicate from a very specific one. Couldn't do it um, because that was on their end. And so kind of going down this rabbit hole of how do we learn how to do state? How do we, like we had to do our own Postgres cluster was one of our asks for management. We we're kind of like, none of us are Postgres experts. And having that kind of helm chart and learning, all right, now that it does this, what kind of, like, how big does this need to be? Does it, like, how does it scale? How do we learn it? It just, it was a really big rabbit hole. And it was really hard to learn between all of the different tools, the different deadlines, and the different specifics. And sometimes you'd run into problems, like, um, with Sentry. I'm almost done, I promise. That. No, no, uh, no, we, it's great. <laughs> no, I feel like I'm taking so much time. No, no, no. But, no. Uh, <laughs> With Sentry, we had this infamous problem that I think it took us about 12 weeks to solve where we ran it as a Docker Compose and it worked. And we ran it as a VM and it worked. And um, we needed to get mobile, so Android, iOS, as well as web information for these healthcare apps. And we really specifically wanted for crash logs. And they would go into Sentry and then they would just kind of disappear. Like we'd look in the logs and we'd see it was there. There was no errors. Everything seemed fine. You'd see the information come in and then it was just gone. And so this kind of comes back to state in that what had happened was the original person who had wrote it had taken the uh, Docker Compose file and just kind of moved it over to Hel the Helm chart. 
The problem here was that the Helm chart basically tried to multi-mount pods to the same volume. So it had multiple ones trying to write to the same volume and it was just kind of silently failing in the background. It took three of us like eight weeks to find because there was no errors anywhere. So it was just like, what's happening? And it's just, it can be a lot to learn state. It, it is difficult, it is hard and um, it's it's hard to know when you've got it right. So yeah, I'm kind of going to stop now. <laughs> but, yeah. That was really, really good. And, and, and obviously as well too, is that we get into a certain story because of a, you know, a technical element and then you end up with international politics in the middle. And, and this is now playing out right now in, in, in Europe with Amazon's use of European data. There's this thing, uh, GDPR. Um, all these issues are, are kind of going on right now. And, and so as much as people are having a you know, very technical approach to these things, like you said, we talk about mindset. And then we even have external factors such as legal factors. Right now, we, you know, we have COVID factors that are influencing a lot of things. Rosemary, is there anything that you would like to add regarding how to approach running data on Kubernetes, stable sets, and the mindset that's necessary to do so? I think what Jackie greatly summarized and, and explained is that all of business value is in data, right? Data is power. It doesn't matter what that data is. If it's a representation of your infrastructure estate, if it's a representation of the customers you have, if it's representative, name it, it is, it is powerful. And there's a fear associated with working with something that could lose that much business value, right? If you do it wrong, you have compliance implications, you have legal implications, you have trust implications, you know, whether it be shareholders or customers or, and, and the people who are using your tool. So I think the first thing is to say, like, take a step back. Are we looking at our data and hoarding it because it's special and we're worried we're going to lose value? And if that's the, if that's the mindset, then it's really hard to tell someone, okay, like, let's try this new way of working with data. Uh, so then you start with this mindset of let's, you know, let's actually talk about what business value you're getting right now. And if the answer is not much, and you could be getting more out of it by changing the technical architectures of your systems, better processing it, making sure that it's better, it's more available. Your, you know, for example, if you're doing batch payments, you could shift to real-time payments. And that would perhaps, you know, fix some of the problems you have with ledgers, batch jobs failing. And, you know, are you going to get more business value by changing your technical architecture? And if the answer is yes, then let's start to upskill and enable all of the ways that we can better manage that. So getting, you know, at least whenever I've talked to, you know, a number of stakeholders who are in charge of this data, the first question is like, oh no, what are we going to do? Uh, the second question is, okay, how much business value are you getting now? How much will you, how much more will you get if we change even some of the technical pieces? Um, and make it more available to you. I think that's a really good point. And that's another thing that's a recurring element in these conversations that we have uh, with lots of different folks is that uh, as much as there's a lot of passion, a lot of interest in technology, don't have the business case, it's gonna be pretty hard for us to go forward. Um, in your particular case, uh, Lily, what kind of business cases have you worked with and what kind of business cases do you think we can anticipate in the future where running data on Kubernetes will make sense? Sure. So I think um, in terms of business cases, it, it really, it, it's like uh, Rosemary said, it's if you don't need to, don't migrate, right? Um, it, if it doesn't make your life easier, if it doesn't make more money, essentially, right? In the end, um, don't migrate. But if, if it does, and it's um, like, if, if you can either 
just make things life easier for your SREs. They can focus on other things like observability um, or improving the tooling around your production. Please like migrate to Kubernetes, migrate to various other things, but you don't have to migrate everything at once, right? I think that's the, the point. You don't have to migrate all your stateful or stateless applications, right? You can start with uh, just migrating in your um, staging environment. You can um, start migrating just certain pieces. And I think that's the beauty of um, Kubernetes or container orchestration tools is that you can just take some pieces out of it and um, you can make a business case um, with that, right? That you can make your staging faster um, or those kind of things, I think. Is definitely um, the thing that I often no, say to I, I people. That's great. Is you know something we say in Spanish, siempre y cuando tiene sentido. Uh, if and always when it makes sense. Or another yeah. expression that we have from the United States that if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense because leave it alone. Yeah, definitely. And particularly yeah. once again, like you said, this really sensitive issue of like, if we're going to move data, are we really sure what we're doing? What's the outcome? What's going to be the cost? Maybe it's going to be more expensive for us to move it than the value it's going to provide by having it in a different place. Um, Thomas, anything you would like to add about business cases? Um, yes, yeah, so basically, I will just stick, you know, to, to my uh, to my um, uh, thes thesis that uh, you know, if you have cloud environment, that maybe your application is working fine, you know, without having, you know, you don't need to migrate something that just works. You know, if it, if it ain't broken, just don't fix it. Uh, we have all but, this good colloquial folklore wisdom from all experiences. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but for many, many cases, if you, for example, if you just use cloud as only, you know, as a virtualization platform, like many companies uh, do, then maybe it's time to move on with something more resilient, for example, because Kubernetes provides more resiliency, more reliability. And especially if you, you know, if you try it with private cloud, because you can't go with public cloud and you try to, you know, setting up OpenStack, for example, which is horrible to set up and horrible to maintain as far as I remember, then maybe it's time for you to try something else. And I would, you know, and I've seen many companies who, who, who decided to move on with Kubernetes, with, for example, OpenShift, which I really admire. And uh, yeah, so, so for those companies who, who has, you know, some gap to, to, to fill, like, like they, they still use some virtual machines with some uh, legacy, hard, legacy storage, for example, then it's time for them to move on with, with something more modern, with cloud-native approach, with Kubernetes. And I would suggest, you know, by, you know, I would suggest them to start breaking things, to start trusting more, start, start trusting more with, you know, uh, with this new approach, start, starting to check whether, you know, those applications will survive any outages or any crashes of, of hardware or anything that can break, actually. Interesting that we have to be destructive to be constructive. Um, yeah, I, 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 would, I would recommend, you know, starting, you know, breaking things because it is just very easy and very easy to test and very cheap to test, actually. So, of, of course, I would do it before actually going to production with, with, with those new applications, with those new stateful workloads. Good. I mean, because that's something that's, that's appeared in this conversation is the idea of being battle tested. And when is something, what is our definition of battle tested? What does that mean? When can we say, okay, I think we're ready to go? Lily, in your experience, how has that been? 
I, I think for I think just use it right. Um, uh, like Tomash said, like just um, run it, um, try it out. Even in your cluster, right? I think the the important is to have people just experience, right? Um, I think having each of your I don't know developers SREs have their own private cluster where they just try things out um, just makes sense, right? Um, opening bugs um, issues on 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 repos and. Um, on the toolings you use is so important to just contribute to the projects that um, that you use and just help resilience and help it be battle tested. I think that's so important um, for us, like for, for us, which we work on OpenShift is that we always make sure, like we have a very specific process, but we also run our own stuff in a long lived cluster. So to make sure that upgrades work and things like that. Um, besides that, we have like um, quality engineering and and people like that. And you should take that approach in your own company, right? Just um, whether you're um, like HashiCorp or Red Hat, you should take that similar approach, I think, with your tooling as well. Good. All right. Very, very good. And then to, get from, to hear from Rosemary and Jackie, this notion of battle testing, of playing around and breaking stuff, how do you approach that in HashiCorp? We'll start with Rosemary. So you don't have to decide. <laughs> Pick one. Uh, so it will actually, it, it heavily depends on the product. Um, and, and as a developer advocate, I get my hands on mostly beta stuff. And, and that's where it starts to iterate, right? So, uh, you know, they give it to usually the developer advocates first uh, as a first go, just to either, either highlight some UX concerns or even some functional concerns, right? So there are some pretty common use cases we're very well aware of. Uh, and then each product, um, some products have large, very large integration suites where they're going to run it. Um, good example of this is Vault, uh, Vault Kubernetes. For, uh, they do a fantastic job uh, checking into where it's running, how it's running, um, what happens when things go down. Uh, you know, with Terraform, even, even though there's like a kind of like the state portion of it is a little bit um, different in some regards. Uh, there is always some tests as to whether or not this backend works. And so there's a broad spectrum of functional tests as well as um, tests that are not perfectly chaotic in nature. I won't call it chaos, you know, some kind of chaos testing uh, because the reality is that it's supposed to highlight some things that, you know, from a production standpoint that you might not come across otherwise. Um, but there are certain amount of entropy that's introduced into the system uh, so that we can understand in the broad spectrum of common use cases, whether or not it will, it will be battle tested. Um, they're also very modular in nature. So everything, everything you add on is also tested individually. Um, so overall, it will depend on product and it will depend on the people who are coming to us and looking at the beta um, releases. Once again, we got the tech side, we got the people side. Depending on the people that are gonna be interacting with it, they'll have one strategy or approach or another. Jackie, anything that you'd like to add on that in terms of battle testing? Sure, um, in terms of battle testing, I guess in my past life as a DevOps engineer, which was really last year, but it feels like 10 years ago at this point. <laughs> something that we, we tried really hard to read all the best practices and we read all the things online about how do you do this and what do you do, but you still can't, you don't get it right unless you talk to people that are actually benefiting or using it. Um, which it sounds pretty straightforward after the fact of, oh, well, you should talk to the people that are going to be using it. So your devs, how are they actually deploying their environments? Are they doing it in the same order you think they are? Are they cherry picking to different environments, et cetera, et cetera? 
because um, we had this like pretty approach of like, hey, we'll do alpha, you know, beta, and then UAT, and then prod, and it'll just go one to the next, to the next, to the next, and that's not actually what was happening, but we didn't know that because we weren't aware. So kind of there's one side of battle testing where you find all these things happening that you just didn't account for or you didn't think of or you didn't know to think of at the time. And then there's the other side of, OK, I think I'm doing it the right way. But what is the right way for them look like? Does this throw a wrench in their flow that we didn't know when we're just trying to help? Um, from our position at HashiCorp, it's been interesting because like working on Nomad, you know, I see a range of well, really everything. So there'll be all kinds of clouds, there'll be all kinds of languages being used. There, It might be Windows, it might not be, it might be specialized Linux distributions I've never heard of until I saw this issue. And just kind of learning from the community and again, our internal SRE and um, infra teams are also just great to learn from. But, you know, I guess my TLDR is no matter how much prep you do or how much reading or how far into it you go, there will always be something that comes up while you're battle testing or while you're deploying to prod, even though you've deployed this a million times somewhere else. Um, so I think it comes back to our earlier point of be patient with yourself, be gentle, and be willing to learn from your mistakes and also admit them so that the rest of your team can kind of be open with that too. I think that's a really good point is that, you know, expect the unexpected. It, no one's going to get it right in the first try. This is going to be a multi-step process. And it's interesting as well too, because last week, um, no, two weeks ago, we did an interview with uh, Tyler, who used to work at Percona and now is at Mozilla. And he was talking, it was interesting. I looked at his LinkedIn and one of the first things he has is he has a description of his personality based on Myers-Briggs personality tests, but then also other things that he's done with StrengthsFinder and things like that. It's something that I've done in the past, um, but I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's good. And I see this more in, in, in the tech community, in, in these kind of communities, perhaps than in, in other sectors, but that to be really, really upfront and open about that sort of stuff, because you may have a, a conflict with a team member or things like that, but it may be just because you have different ways of approaching problems. And particularly when we're talking, not just from uh, you know, a team, let's say that everyone is from the same country, but particularly all of us are working in international environments. So people have different ways of approaching problems in different countries and a different, uh, we could say communication um, styles in, in terms of how they address issues. I think that there's a, a lot to be said for that. So with that in mind, um, I, I, wanna, I wanna ask kind of all of you is that, it, once again, in terms of the personality that's going to be necessary to deal with, whether it's running safe applications, um, how are these things dealt with in, in the companies that you work at? Can we start with you? How do you, how do you approach these issues in Red Hat? Sure. So um, I think we, we try to approach it by working very closely with um, our SRE team um, who actually run OpenShift dedicated. Um, so they run OpenShift for customers. And I think it's it's important to just have working groups. It's important to have um, like common interests, and it's important to find those things. Um, it's it's like this is the same as in the open source, right? You're always gonna have a hundred personalities, um, and you're always gonna have people who are who will just approach you thinking just because you do um, open source stuff, you have to fix this issue for them. Um, so it's definitely like. It, you, you meet a lot of personalities and um, just knowing that you're all working towards the same goal, um, despite people approaching it in a different way, I think is the most important thing. I think it's a very polite way of talking about how to deal with difficult people. No, because it's true is that when you're exposing yourself, some people get a real rush out of, you know, attacking or being nitpicky or trying to make corrections or things like that. 
but I think there's, I think there's a, a lot to be said for understanding that this is just part of the process and to not take things so personally, you know, like I think, yeah, exactly. and that's not, but that's not easy. You know, that's not easy when someone's sharing their code, when they're uploading something to a repository, you know, they're kind of uh, burying themselves to the world and, and people can not really know what kind of background or baggage or things like that they might be bringing with them. So, like I said, I think a lot of what we try to do, at least in our community is always guide people towards solutions, be kind when responding, you know, take these things into account and not be so harsh. You know, we're all supposed to be supposedly building things together and sharing things. And I think now more than ever in 2020 with the COVID situation, all these things, uh, a little bit of solidarity, I think goes a long way. That being said, shifting it more towards community practices. Um, Thomas, you've been involved in, in different communities related to Kubernetes and other ones. What are things that you feel make a successful community what it is? Well, curiosity for sure, because you know communities are all about you know um, exchanging experiences, ex exchanging uh, knowledge for sure. So, uh, well, it's all about openness and curiosity. So these are the most uh, in, uh, important factors here. And uh, but I. I I want you to know, I want to also mention that curiosity is also very important when it comes to, you know, dealing with hard situations because uh, I'm a learner. So, so my, my um, strength finder skill is learner. So for me, every, every opportunity to learn is something very precious and uh, it allows me and, and many people uh, also, uh, uh, you know, this curiosity allow uh, to, you know, to learn something about themselves something about what actually happened and not you know not, not just go into you know just this finger pointing uh, mode so that, that's really really important i think and then it's also part of my uh, my job you know when it comes to um, community to you know to, to share this idea that it's you know we are just people it's you no know, every, everything everyone can can make uh, mistakes uh, um, things happen so it's all about it's all about learning. I think, I think it's a great point. Is that there? You know, there's there are lots of learning experiences that you can withdraw from any from any environment. Um, I, I would definitely say I've learned much more from my failures in life than my successes, um, and that not so much to be obsessed with the result, but to, to focus on the process of how you get there. You know, and there will be many twists and turns, and there will be you learn things about coworkers, you'll learn things about yourself, um, and those are all things that are going to make you better at the end of the day. Now, with that in mind as well, too, you know, dev advocates, I think a lot of what your, your work must be involved is, is, you know, in community building. What are strategies, apart from what we've talked about already regarding curiosity and maybe some of these uh, elements of patience, what other things would you add for any community out there that wants to be successful? And we'll start with Jackie this time. Ooh, thinking. Um, I've got so many things I want to answer to. Ah. Um, wow. I mean... Like always, I think we've kind of touched already, but always trying to be empathetic and like, you know, sometimes working, I'm going to take a step back even further and say, um, I was the kind of contributor that was like really, really scared talking to people at conferences. I didn't want to get into speaking. I, it was <laughs> it's just kind of a thing that ran away on me. Um, and I was really scared of putting myself out there and kind of coming into this role as a developer advocate where now you're working with the community and people are kind of approaching you often at the point that they're frustrated enough that they're reaching out of their inner circle um coming from that place of empathy and being like being willing to kind of figure out where the gaps are and listen to them like really listen is just so important and it, it is really hard at a scale like ours where 
you know, I'm I'm the DA focused on Nomad. So there's a lot of there's a lot of Nomad users, and a lot of times they're working at scales that I didn't work with. Like I've never worked at a Roblox level of scale where you have hundreds of millions of users. And just kind of trying to listen and fill those gaps in and make sure that they feel heard, but also make sure that that feedback makes it somewhere. Because if they feel heard, but then they don't they don't see anything, like they don't see updates or they don't get next steps or they don't know how to proceed, it doesn't help um, as much as I'd like it to. So I think it's kind of like a big picture, what like trying to get past that frustration and figure out how do I fit that together? How do I help them? And how do I kind of get them back on their way while taking back what I can for the team? Um, sorry, I'll have one more thing to say and then I'm done on that. But I think the coolest thing I saw so far is I, again, it's an internal one, but I saw something our SREs were doing I thought was really cool. And I brought it to the developer team, kind of like, a, hey, I found this. And they were like, I had no idea people were using it that way. Oh my gosh, have we done something that hurts like to use? Can we go fix that? And having more examples of that and being able to provide that direct feedback and then seeing our devs actually be enthusiastic to try and add that into the roadmap has just been it's been kind of like a good incentive to keep getting that feedback, even though it's often uncomfortable and hard because I don't want them to be upset. <laughs> like, yeah, but like you said, I want to help. <laughs> but even though there might be those moments, those in, in the moment, it might be difficult or uncomfortable. Later, those insights that you can get that then can be beneficial from other teams. Like, hey, you just you just made this team's day. You know, like you just helped them get through this. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the important, once again, we go through this tech and this human stuff is that the importance of empathy and being a good listener, which is goes beyond just listening to someone talk and waiting for the finish so that you can respond. Um, I think those are all very, very good points. Rosemary, is there anything that you'd like to add? On that note, I'll probably say that if you want to build a community and it just like this one, which is amazing, you know, part of it is to, to never tell someone you're wrong. Um, it, the, the, that's the, the worst thing that you could do when you're building a community is to tell someone you're wrong. Um, and it, yes, it sounds terrible and, and sure, you know, why, why would, you know, there are things that maybe are very wrong, but the, the idea is that when you're in a community and you're building it up, the idea is to ask, okay, so what is this pattern you're using? What are the problems with it? And why won't it skip? And um, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, if it's within your organization, it doesn't matter if it's something on a repository that's technical in nature. And um, I think that one of the things that I learned from listening to open source users, but also starting communities, um, not even with a specific repository or a project in mind, is to always you know, have the empathy and for the most part, never say that someone is wrong. Try to understand the context by which they're using it and why it works for them at that point in time. Um, because we've all learned and we've all gone through that kind of process. Um, so I never say you're wrong to someone. That's a really, really good lesson to never say you're wrong. The thing is, there are so many other ways you can say that is, is asking, well, what, um, what were the factors that contributed to you arriving to that conclusion? Um, also because, you know, right and wrong can always be very subjective. I think the bottom line here is though, is that we are, we're interacting with so many folks that have spent thousands of hours, thousands and thousands of hours on on coding, on working on open source projects, on, on really getting into all this stuff. And then you, then you, it's only fair that if empathy is a muscle, you know, how many thousands of hours have they spent, you know, exercising and working on it? And some people have arrived to different phases than, than, than other folks. But I think the, the main thing is, is really trying to keep that present. Like I always keep coming back to this, but as much as we're talking about a tech focus, you know, we have to, we have to keep in mind the, the human, the emotional, the psychological, the compatibilities, the personality conflicts, all those things. Now, we're getting close to the end. So 
This has been the State of State. It's been a fantastic, diverse conversation with lots of different stuff that we've been able to talk about. If you had to make, I'm going to give everybody, let's say 30 seconds to one minute, not an easy question. And if you want to abstain, that's totally fine. Um, we'll start with you, Lily. In one year from now, all right, who knows how we'll be celebrating KubeCon in 2021. Um, well, I mean, we already have dates and things like that, but the way in which we'll be doing it, hopefully we can repeat this conversation. We can have round two of this, the state of state. Where do you see uh, the state of state in 2021? What do you think is going to be developing? How do you think people are going to be approaching running uh, stateful sets on, on Kubernetes? What do you think? Well, hopefully it will be in Los Angeles, I think it was announced. Um, so hopefully it's finally happening as a I actually miss conferences, which I didn't think I would say before. But yes, um, I think the main thing, the main focus is to make the operators that um, run the stateful applications more resilient um, by either battle testing them more to um, developing new operators or even like taking the ones that exist and just um, making them better, essentially like adding backup, um, those kind of things to the existing ones. I think that that is the future, I think. All right. So we're imagining being Los Angeles, nice Southern California weather, and new and new and improved upgrade uh, operators. All right. Very good, Thomas. What about you? Well, I agree with Lily. I, I wish you know the next meeting or, or you know more conferences. Uh, you know next year that they will be you know hosted somewhere on site rather than online. So uh, basically th this is my wish, but uh, yeah. So I wish, you know, from uh, one year from now that more people, uh, you know, will use uh, Kubernetes, uh, you know, especially for, especially those organizations who, who just are still, you know, stuck with some legacy, approach legacy hardware maybe and so on so i wish they would just come up and uh, and uh, start using containers and kubernetes a lot and, and stop being afraid of, of those new technologies this is a good point a lot of we encounter is fear and uncertainty um where i live exactly they're actually what's funny is that we're starting to realize because of the, through this community of contacting lots of folks who i've worked with but there are more and more people, that many more people than it seems, that have been working with data on Kubernetes and have been doing so for a while. Um, the, 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 the tricky thing is, is that because, let's say, locally speaking here, if people don't see a major industrial company publicly stating that they're doing something like this, maybe it's only in their, you know, their um, research and development area or something like that, it might seem a little bit more exper experimental. But that's so, what's so important about this community is that once we have these conversations, some people might say, oh, gosh, you know, like this is definitely not for me or I couldn't do it. It goes over my head. We say, well, you've done this and you've done that and you've worked with Hadoop and you've worked with Elastic and you, you've even taken a look at um, some things in the, in the operator world. I think you could, you know, definitely make the migration. It's just, once again, a question of trial and error and patience. So I think that's a really, really good point that you're making. Um, Rosemary, prediction for 2021, the state of state, what will we be talking about next year in November? I think it will be balancing operator experience with security, right? So how do you ensure that the access management of that state is something that you know, you, you're enforcing on Kubernetes? Because we have more uh, great features than 1.19 uh, geared around state storage and improving the operator experience for that. But 
we also haven't really talked much about the security aspects, who's accessing it, where it's going, how is it encrypted, where, why, and, and how you ensure you audit it correctly. So I think we'll probably be talking about security. This is a good point. And it's actually something that unfortunately we didn't touch on enough today. And we can obviously go over the security gives tons of material for lots and lots of conversations. And this issue of, uh, of encryption, I think is also super interesting as well. Um, so that's a good point. I, I hope that for many companies and lots of folks out there, we don't wait until November to have conversations about security because it's often the thing that gets put off until the very, very end. It's like, no, we actually probably need that in the very, very beginning. Um, when we're talking about best practices, when we're talking about culture, when we're talking about mindset, when we're talking about breaking things, in which context, in which environment, who has access to what, these are all very, very good questions. And last but not least, Jackie, November 2021, what is going to be the state of state? There's unmute. Okay. <laughs> I think, as everyone knows, this year has been a really different year. It's shook up a lot of how people work and how we collaborate. Um, and I think that there's, there's, well, there's a lot of discussion around how infrastructure and technical lines tend to mirror your organizational lines. So I'm really interested in seeing what comes up next year around these new or well, new or shifted organizational lines. Now that you're not sitting in the same row with your team and you're like, it's all, you know, across the internet or calls, is it more inclusive or is it more siloed? How does that kind of reflect in the future? And I think like what Rosemary had to say about security is gonna tie a lot into that because now you can't do things like, hey, I'm just gonna whitelist the office IP, right? You need more robust security controls and ways of accessing and auditing that. Um, so. Last year, there was a lot of discussion on state and user experience, and I think it's only natural that next year there'll be security. So we'll see how that goes. This is a good point. You know, that we, we want to encourage freedom. We want things to be horizontal, but at the same time, we need visibility when we're talking about auto discovery and microservices, um, things that can go on, whether it's with orchestrators, sidecars, et cetera. There are lots and lots of what ifs. And sometimes, you know, security people are in the business of security. So the more fear you have, the more money they make. But there's a lot of good reasons behind a lot of these arguments, and I think they do need to be taken seriously. That being said, we are reaching the end. This has been a super cool conversation. We always have with us our graphic recorder, who is Angel. Angel, can you say hello? I will ask you to unmute. So anyway, while we've, while we've been talking, um, a very talented artist has been uh, drawing the conversation. I'm David. Puedes cambiar de la pantalla. So if you can see my screen, can everybody see my screen? Um, so here we have a visual summary of some of the different things that, we're, that we've been talking about. Ankel has to work very, very hard while we're doing this. And another thing that we talk, that we didn't get to as well is obviously, you know, many people here speak more than one language. So Ankel, for Ankel, English is not his first language. So he's been deciphering everything that's been talked about. I've been giving him a couple of tips and, and hints, um, but it's something that we always like to give as a present to our, our fantastic panelists, our fantastic guests here in Data on Kubernetes. So I will be sending that to you uh, via email so we can continue the conversation. It's always a nice way to, to sort of wrap up and have a visual representation of, we talked about a lot of stuff. Um, so anyway, that being said, I wanna thank you all very, very much for your time. As I said in the beginning, very happy that from now on with every data on Kubernetes meetup we're gonna be doing, we will be donating to a different NGO and today will be Code 2040. Like I said, helps increase diversity in the United States for the different profiles of people who are involved in coding. Um, I'm sure we're all gonna be enjoying a lot, all the things that will be going on in KubeCon in the next few days. Um, we'll have the, we'll have all this uploaded to YouTube probably by the end of today and the podcast probably uh, later on this week. Um, so thank you all very, very much to our panelists, to Thomas, to Lily, to Jackie, and to Rosemary. My name is Bart. If you want to get a t-shirt, hit me up on Slack. Thank you all very, very much. Take care.